Thanks, Jeanette. Good morning. Yeah, my name's Dan. If we haven't met before, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, a question just to start with, what is true greatness? What is true greatness? Here's one picture in our culture. Australia has, has obviously uh, produced some great sports people over time. Do you know who the bloke is on the left? Thorpey, Ian Thorpe. That was my brother's idol when he grew up. And then on the right, Kathy Freeman. Yep, world record holders, Olympic medalists, and we've, we've had the odd soccer star here and there as well. So there's one picture of greatness. Uh, maybe a bit closer to home, you know someone who's been really successful in their career, right? They've climbed to the top. They're the top dog. Everyone goes to them because they're the expert in residence. Uh, maybe they've got a PhD. Maybe they get the big bucks. So there's a picture of greatness that our culture certainly holds. Here's another one. The famous culture shapers. I wonder how many of them you could name. And like them or not, when people like this speak, millions listen. And it might be because they're knowledgeable or because they're attractive uh, or just because they're famous. <laughs> but again, uh, this is a picture of greatness according to our culture as well. And our culture rewards those who, like these guys here, make it to the top, right? Those who are particularly knowledgeable or who are particularly uh, famous or who are particularly skilled or particularly attractive, they get rewarded with things like power and influence and money, yeah? So that's what our culture tends to say is great. But here in Matthew 18, Jesus' followers come up to him and they ask him a question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And their question, on, in one sense, is a good one because they're acknowledging something that our culture tends to miss, which is that greatness is not just about this life, right? There is a bigger world than the world of sport and career and fame and beauty. Uh, there is a bigger kingdom where culture is, in fact, not in charge, but where God is in charge, uh, where he actually sets the state of play for life. And Jesus has come to invite us into the reality of that kingdom so that we might live under God's rule and not just for this 70 or 80 years, but under his good kingship for eternity. And our culture totally misses that, right? Those who buy into that cultural sense of greatness, whatever form it is that we've just seen, are like racehorses with those blinkers on. You've seen those before? little mask that they wear and they all they see is the racetrack and all they do is run in circles. And that's where our cultural sense of greatness leads us because Olympic medals, I mean, they're going to rust. World records are going to be broken. Uh, cultural influences one day will be irrelevant. Uh, the beautiful will lose their beauty. The wealthy will lose their wealth. The expert will one day be surpassed. So all of this, it just, it just vanishes like the morning mist. And so the disciples come out. I think they realize that. They realize that life is not just about this 70 or 80 years. I hope you realize that too. But life is about the kingdom of God. So they're not complete bozos, but they are kind of bozos because they do make a great error in their question as well. You might hear it. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You see what they're asking is, who's the top dog? Who's the most influential? Who's the best? Who's the most powerful in the kingdom of heaven? After all, uh, we see the disciples arguing over this sort of stuff in other passages as well. Mark chapter 10, 
uh, James and John come to Jesus. You know this scene? And they say, uh, can we sit at your right hand and your left when you come in your glory? You hear what they're asking? Can we have the top drawer? And the other disciples all start spitting chips about it, of course. (laughs) No, why should you get to sit there? I should get to sit there. The same argument comes up again literally at the Last Supper, right? Like, read the room. Jesus is about to be crucified. You're arguing about who's the best. So they do this over and over again. And so the problem that Jesus has to deal with is that the disciples might understand that, yeah, okay, true greatness is not about this life only. It's to do with the kingdom of heaven. But they're still importing in cultural assumptions about what true greatness entails. Imagine having to be in Jesus' position and deal with these guys and this constant problem that just keeps coming up. It's still about the top dog for them still about who has the most influence. And so what we're going to see today is that Jesus turns those assumptions upside down when he points to a child and says, he's a picture of true greatness. Not what you guys think, power, influence, being at the top, but actually being at the bottom. And we're going to see what that means today. In a world that links greatness with power and influence, he gives a different example of true greatness. And this is relevant for anyone who wants to leave a good legacy or live a useful life or, and I hope, realizes that life in the kingdom is about more than just what we do and accomplish here. But they actually want to serve God and make a difference in his kingdom and and be the sort of person in his kingdom that God calls them to be. So this is relevant if that's you. Uh, But Jesus also goes somewhere that the disciples don't expect with this stuff. And what we're calling this little series in Matthew 18, 19, 20 over the next couple of months is hard words of Jesus. And you can see behind me the art team. So Sky and and Claudine were here yesterday ripping out pages of a Bible. I hope that's not too sacrilege. And and putting them up on the wall there behind the cross uh, to show that the words of Jesus need to sort of grab us and, and sort of be right in our face, right? Because where Jesus goes with this is quite surprising. There's not just an example of true greatness, but there's also a threat to true greatness. As it were, there is a pit that potentially swallows up so many who try to seek true greatness, even greatness in the kingdom of God, even the kind of greatness as exemplified by the child that we're going to meet. And so today we're going to see how to be truly great in God's kingdom, but also how to avoid that pit and avoid that threat. Will you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for this time that we have with one another this morning under your word. We pray uh, on this this fairly cold morning, Lord, would you um, warm us up, wake us up, uh, help us listen to you, have attentive ears, eyes to see your truth. Uh, And and we ask, Lord, that even um, for those who are at, uh, at home this morning that might be tuning in on the live stream because they're unwell, particularly, Lord, help them to be attentive to you and your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That's right, Daisy. Amen. That's what we say at the end of our prayer. So open up to Matthew 18 with me if you've got your Bible there. If you don't have your Bible, um, please just Google Matthew 18 and then the letters ESV. That's the translation we're using. Um, If you don't have a Bible or a phone in front of you, then what are you doing? (laughs) Get one or the other, okay? I want you to be able to see these words and track along with me. So in verse 1, Matthew 18, verse 1, uh, the disciples come with that question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then Jesus responds in verse 2. 
and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And just imagine the scene, okay? Remember the fights that happened with the disciples behind all this? So Peter's sort of going like, you know, so who's the greatest? And he's nudging James out of the way. And then there's John who's like, oh, you know, you shouldn't ask him that. And then, you know, Matthew's in the background, something like, oh, you're just afraid of the answer. And on it goes, like these little bickering uh, things that they have. And then Jesus pans over them and his eyes rest on Peter for a moment. And Peter's like, yeah, that's right. And then he keeps going. Oh. <laughs> and, then, and then he looks around and then eventually his gaze rests on a child. Someone that the group has been overlooking. And then he calls this child into the midst of them. Notice how it says that there, the midst of them. It's not just that he put the child in front of them. It's not just that he pointed out a child in the crowd. He drew the child out and then had them stand in the middle. So everyone's got to look down at what Jesus is doing. Right? And imagine them this is at this moment going, he's not answering our questions, he's just getting this kid. What's going on? And then in verse 3, he says, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And notice he still doesn't answer their question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, unless you become a child, you won't enter. Now, actually, what he's doing here is he's saying, guys, so you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Well, hold on. Let's take a couple of steps back. Unless you become like this child here, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven, let alone be great. Right, they're squabbling over who has the best title on their name tag. Whereas Jesus is saying, actually, you're at risk of not even entering the gates. Now, unless you turn, and I think it's the King James that uses the word here, convert. Right? It's a strong word. It's not just sort of smidge left a bit. Unless you totally change your direction, literally repent. This word is often used to mean, unless you repent... Chuck a Yui, take the exit ramp. Unless you become like children, you'll be stuck outside the kingdom of heaven. Hard words of Jesus. But the question is, what does it mean to become like a child? Well, I'll ask you, because that could mean lots of different things, right? What could Jesus be meaning here? Give me a bit of feedback. Right or wrong, maybe or maybe not. What could he mean here? Okay, always wanting to learn. Yep, dependent. Humble. Yep. Trusting, good. Innocent, Pam, thank you, yeah. Helpless, carry in. yep. Whole bunch of options there, yep, great. So it it could mean any of those things, right? Um, Children are lots of different things. Thankfully, in verse 4, if you read just a couple of words down, Jesus gives us the key. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So there you go. That's what it means to become like a child in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't just mean innocent necessarily because children are not necessarily innocent. (laughs) Is that phrase Rob's been using lately, vipers in diapers. We visited the Jenners in hospital the other day because that's Josiah has been in hospital. And Sailor just keeps saying that phrase like walking around the hospital, vipers in diapers, vipers in diapers. She thinks it's hilarious. It's, you know, there's this reality that, that children are not inherently innocent, right? Like we're, we're going to meet our newborn, hopefully in, in 20 weeks' time. 
And we're going to be holding that, that thing going, what a miracle, you know, praise God, what a gift, of course. But it won't take long for, for our newborn baby to show also that it is a sinner from birth, <laughs> right? Children are not inherently innocent. So I don't think that's what's in view here. Uh, nor does it mean be sort of, we didn't raise this, but I don't, I don't think it means be simple like a child either. You know, I think, like you said, uh, Judy, always learning is better. Um, but it's, it's not just be simple as if thinking is the enemy, like we should just have a simplistic faith. Because, you know, the Gospel of Matthew is actually full of Jesus' teachings. <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount, for example, is a long-form teaching. You have to use your mind and think through. And just a few chapters' time, we're going to hear him say that, uh, that our chief end is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and all our what? Mind. Yeah, think, in other words. So I don't think it means simple. But the key thing is be humble like a child. The problem is, how many humble children do you know? I remember visiting a family once, and um, uh, the, the, as you do when you don't want a pastor or visit to a family, the kids were playing a game, and I sat down and played with them. And, and it was a game of checkers or chess or something like that. The sister happened to beat the brother twice in a row. And she just says the words, I'm feeling smug. That great honesty, top notch. <laughs> Humility, not so much. And that's a pretty tame example. You know, we've all seen game controllers thrown across the room and the chess pieces strewn across the floor and the, the soccer ball kicked over the fence because kids don't tend to be happy losers and kids don't tend to be gracious winners. And that's pretty true of adults as well. Right? So so I don't think that this means humble in terms of like a childlike quality of humility because there is no childlike quality of humility in that sense it's not to do with behavior and, and actually what helps us is that this word behind the word humble here um, is is usually used for status rather than behavior do you know what i mean by that it's not a humble character quality as as much a humble position taking the bottom rung and this is where, Reynard, you hit the, the nail on the head with this. It's humility in terms of um, I'm, I'm taking the bottom status. I'm not in charge. I'm dependent. I'm vulnerable. That's what a child is, after all, right? Because, I mean, in the ancient world, this is a time before student-centered education and gentle parenting and baby-led sleep schedules. Kids didn't matter. In the ancient world, they didn't get a say, right? They'd be born and at best they're a temporary inconvenience until they sort of grow up and, and become, you know, useful enough to contribute to the family. <laughs> until then, they, you know, parents have to feed them and make sure they sleep and generally make sure they don't die. So that's kids in the ancient world. And it's kind of similar today. I mean, we've, we've got a whole lot more student-centered, child-centered stuff today. It's good. Um, but at the same time, when we're born, we're very dependent on our parents for everything. If they chose not to feed us, we wouldn't be here. If they chose not to shelter us, we'd die of exposure. Right? And so for food, water, clothing, everything else, uh, we are still dependent on our parents until we grow up. And, and I, I just think that the challenge here is put yourself back in those shoes if you can. Imagine yourself being like, she's not in here now, but Daisy's age, two years old or so. 
we, like we're, as adults, we don't think that way really anymore. We provide for ourselves. We look after ourselves. We can. We have that capacity. Put yourself back in those shoes. What a vulnerable position to be in. Not having a say. Not being in charge. Not being autonomous as we tend to be. It's vulnerable. It's weak. And Jesus says, if you don't take that position, you won't enter the kingdom, let alone be great in the kingdom. Really? Yeah. In fact, doing so is just to acknowledge reality for what it is. Right? You put a baby in a business suit and you go, that doesn't match up. That, that is actually reality for us. I mean, none of us chose where we'd be born. None of us chose when we'd be born. None of us chose that we'd be born. We're just here because of the choice of our parents. That wasn't our choice. Every breath we take is, is contingent. It's contingent on a whole lot of things. It's contingent on the fact that there's no war currently on our doorstep. Spare a thought for our brothers and sisters for, for whom that is not the case. It's contingent on the fact more cosmically that God actually ordains every one of our breaths. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So think about that. Every moment, Jesus is willing that this universe keeps going. And he is willing that you take another breath. And if he at any moment should stop doing that, stop actively willing that this universe holds together and that you take another breath, then those things will cease to be. But he's gracious and he continues to do those things. We are contingent beings. We are dependent in so many ways, not only in the circumstances of life, but ultimately on God. And that's no more true than our eternal destiny as well. There is a, a preacher 300 years ago that I've been, been doing lots of reading on, whose name is Jonathan Edwards. Uh, and he, so he uses this metaphor that we are like a spider or a, a creature that is suspended on a spider web hanging over the pits of hell. And all God would have to do is pluck that strand and we would be lost into an eternity devoid of God's love and goodness and kindness and blessing. Right? That, that's our condition. Praise God that he doesn't do that. Praise God that he offers a way for us to enter his kingdom, to be safe in his hand rather than suspended on a spider web. And the way in is by adopting this position, the childlike position, the humble position, recognizing that we're not in charge. We're not the ones who run the universe. Children who confess that they haven't obeyed their heavenly father. I mean, instead, we're, we're runaways who've rejected him at every turn. We need to become children who then turn, convert to Jesus and recognize that only he and, and his work on the cross for us is what enables us to be safe in the hands of God again. His substitutionary work on the cross where he was treated as the runaway child, he was treated as the enemy of God for our sake, taking our sin upon himself, taking the punishment, discipline, condemnation we deserve, so that we might be adopted again into the household of God, brought home, as it were. That we might become children, sons and daughters of the Most High, safe in His hand, safe in His home, 
only through Jesus and not our own works. That's a humble, dependent position where we give up our fantasy of being in charge and we say, actually, no, God, I need you. I need you and your forgiveness and I need you to be the one that's ruling my life. Because that's just reality. And then we find that we not only enter God's kingdom in this way of childlike, humble trust, but are given a position of greatness. As verse 4 puts it, whoever humbles himself like this child is what? The greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Because whoever humbles themselves, God adopts as a husband. You know, you know the prodigal son where the younger son comes home? And the robe gets put on him and the rings on his fingers and the fattened calf and the big meal and the big hullabaloo because he's given a position of greatness. Did he deserve it? Did he earn it? Nope. Just his father's mercy. There it is. God in his mercy and grace pouring out kindness on us, adoptive, relational, bringing into the family, giving us a position and a status as children, <laughs> lavishing his love on us for eternity. There's the position of greatness. That's true greatness. And the only way to receive it is by becoming a child. The only way up is down. And here's the thing. It's just not natural for us, is it? I'm looking out at a sea of adults this morning. People who've probably, you know, well, certainly have graduated from high school, but maybe have gone to university and gone places with their job. Some of you have retired. You know, you've made it to the end. So think about like, you know, we, we've climbed the ladder. We've made it to the top. No one likes landing on the snake and then going all the way back to square one. And yet that's what Jesus is calling us to do. He's saying, take off the suit. Take the snake. Go back to square one. Because unless we become like children, we won't enter the kingdom. Where do you stand with that? Are you adopting that position before God and in your life? Are you still holding on to your pride, pretending like you're in charge? Because you're not. Or are you hoping that coming to church and doing good things and being generous will get you into God's kingdom? It won't. The only way up is down. We need to become like children to enter the kingdom. Question. How can you know if that's you? How can you know if you've adopted that position? Well, Jesus says in verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. How do I know if I've received Jesus? Well, it's because I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade and received him into my heart. Yeah, that's good. But Jesus says, Whoever receives one such child in my name is the one who receives me. See, childlike humility, the kind that saves, works itself out in how we treat people. And in particular, how we treat the vulnerable, the dependent, those who are on the bottom rung among us. Particularly, how we treat children. How we treat children is, in effect, how we treat Jesus. And the person who's great in God's kingdom and is part of God's kingdom will receive and welcome and cherish and lift up and love and serve children and the least among us. 
because they know that in so doing, they are in fact welcoming and receiving and cherishing and lifting up and loving and serving Jesus. Do you hear that? It's part of actually why we want children to stay in with us during the service. I know we don't have too many kids here this morning. The Jenners are sick and a couple of others are away. Uh, but, but we want kids in here for, for this reason. I used to do the Sunday school thing, right? Like I was the Sunday school kids guy here at church. I'm still the kids guy, right? I'm just not the Sunday school guy. And, and here's my observation over, you know, years and years and years of doing it. Um, the people that would be there serving kids, loving kids, lifting up kids would be one, two, or three out of a church of like 60 or 70 people. So you've only got one, two, or three people that are really receiving, welcoming, cherishing, lifting up, helping, and, and serving the kids in our church. The rest of you don't know them really from a bar of soap, right? Um, and that's not an indictment. I think that's actually an issue with outsourcing things to programs, Uh, And so when we strive to keep kids in with us, it reminds us that actually the kids are part of this body here. And they are someone that we have a responsibility to. It's not just for the Sunday school teachers out there who will do a really great job. It's, It's me and it's you and it's all of us. We have a responsibility to pray for these kids, a responsibility to get to know these kids a responsibility to, to try and find out what are their fears and, and what are their hopes and, and what is it going to take for them to know Jesus. Will you do that? Like think about, I know, again, we don't have too many here this morning, but, but next week when more kids walk in through this door, are you going to like just pass over and going, ah, oh, that, that doesn't matter because I'm here to have some adult conversation, right? Or are you going to go, there is someone made in the image of God who's actually just like me, vulnerable, dependent, not in charge. And when I serve them, I serve Jesus. So there's one, there's one way you can know that actually you are this humble, childlike person. It's how you treat children. Uh, one other thing I just want to say on this as well is um, it's really important not to conflate humility with passivity. Do you know what I mean by that? Um, I think that some of you, and I will say some of you, believe that you're humble but it's only because you're passive. As if to say, you know, um, I, I don't treat anyone badly. I don't get in anyone's way. I don't create any drama. Um, I, I don't, you know, I'm not competitive. I'm not trying to go for the top spot. Yeah, that, again, that's good. Um, I'm not self-seeking. Yeah, but that's only because you're not really seeking anything. And humility isn't passive, it's active, it's active service. It's putting myself on the bottom rung and lifting up those in front of me, okay? So when Jesus calls us to the kind of humble childlike faith that, that welcomes, receives, cherishes, loves and serves the vulnerable among us, um, it's not just like this central coast apathetic spirit of, oh, you do your thing and I'll do mine and we won't get in each other's way. That's not humility. Humility is actively looking and saying, how can I do as much as I can for the vulnerable among, among us, particularly for the kids? So there's the example of true greatness that Jesus gives us. An example of other-centered, not in charge, humble, dependent, vulnerable position. But he's got more to say. Like I said, hard words of Jesus. 
there's a threat as well. As much as there is an example of true greatness, there's also a threat to true greatness, something that seeks to undermine our entry into God's kingdom and our status as children. Have a look with me at verse 6. So remember, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. There's the positive, but here's the threat. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. See, there's a kind of person who instead of loving and serving the vulnerable, particularly kids among us, causes issues for their faith, makes it difficult for them to be here, makes it difficult for them to follow and trust Jesus. And at its lowest and most heinous, this is the sort of thing that came out in the Royal Commission, right? And I know it's a bit of a bummer, those of you who serve in ministry here and particularly who serve in child-facing ministry, that we have to go and do training every few years and we have to have a safe church policy and follow it and make sure that when we're interacting with kids, it's never alone. It's always two to one, right? I know it's a little bit of an inconvenience. There's a reason for that stuff. It's good, actually, that these things came out and we're able to take more action because there are people who are predatory. The problem is, is it's not just the predators that threaten children that Jesus is talking about here. It's actually anyone who might cause a child to sin or more literally here put a stumbling block in front of a child the sort of thing where like they're walking down the path and then well because someone's put something in their path right so anyone who who threatens the developing faith of a child this could be the father that embitters his children because he's he's always just like heavy-handed with his discipline he never tells them that he, he loves them It's always just on the punishment, discipline, harshness side. Scripture actually warns against that. Or it could be the mother who's just always critical whenever their their child makes a mistake. It's always just there with a a harsh word, a passive-aggressive comment. But it might not just be parents, right? It's actually any of us that send the message to kids that they don't matter or they're not worth our time or that they don't belong here among us, who treat them as a... Temporary nuisance until they grow up and can actually contribute to the family. What does that sound like? These things put a a stumbling block in the way of a child's developing faith. And for anyone who makes that happen, Jesus says it's better for them to have a millstone. You know what a millstone is? This is a millstone, right? Big rock in the middle there. You attach a donkey to it. The donkey walks around. And that, that rock will grind the wheat. So it's got to be a really heavy rock that the donkey's not just going to, you know, rip it up and run away into the fields. And, and it's got to be heavy enough that it's going to grind things. You can see on the right there, that's a really big one. And, and Jesus is saying, it's better for you to have one of these big rocks lashed around your neck and to jump off a cliff into the sea than to lead a child into sin, to put a stumbling block in front of a child's developing faith. Right? It is better for you to sink in a dark, watery than for you to put a stumbling block in front of a child. And this isn't just when it comes to children, by the way. Again, hard words of Jesus. You see, there's a big focus here, of course, on kids. But look at this phrase here in verse 6, little ones. Little ones. It doesn't just refer to kids. 
He's been speaking about children up till verse 5. Now he switches from child to little ones. And if you look down in verse 10, we're going to look at this passage next week. The parable of lost sheep. You know this one? 99 sheep, safe at home. One goes wandering. The shepherd goes and finds it, puts it on his back, brings it home. Same word used in verse 10. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. And then down in verse 14 as well. uh, It's the will of my father in heaven that not one of these little ones should perish. He's picturing the, the sheep as the little one. Now, is that parable only talking about children? No, it's talking about believers of, of any kind, any age. We'll look at that next week if you don't know what that parable is all about. Little ones is more than just kids. And if you want to come back as well, Matthew 10, verse 42, this is an interesting one. Um, there's a, a talk here about the disciples going out um, and on, on rewards to those who receive them into their homes um, while they're, they're out sort of sharing the word. And in verse 42, we get whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And again, that's not just talking about children, right? The little ones here is adult disciples that are going around preaching the gospel. And there's a reward for those who receive them. So, so the little ones here can actually not just be kids, but any disciple that is following Jesus in this humble, childlike, trusting way. In other words, any disciple of Jesus, any true disciple anyway. And so what do we do with that? Well, we say something like, um, when we adopt that position of humility, we, we don't just pretend to be childlike, we actually become childlike because we open ourselves up. We become vulnerable in the community of believers, right? We put ourselves in a position where, where someone might harm us or hurt us or take advantage of us in some way. And Jesus here is putting a protective wall and saying, if anyone actually does that, harm, hurt, Uh, cause someone to sin, lead someone to to stumble in their faith. He says, I'm not putting up with that. I'm not putting up with with anyone treating my sheep that way. And God the Father is saying, I'm not putting up with anyone treating my kids that way. How is that fair though? Why should I be held responsible for someone else's faith? Why should I be held responsible if someone else is tempted to sin? Because after all, the the world is full of temptations, right? Around every corner. Why should I be held responsible? Well, Jesus answers that very question in verse 7. Have a look. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Yeah, there's lots of temptations to sin in the world. For it's necessary that temptations come. Why necessary? Because of the fall, right? Original sin, the world is broken, Jesus is going to come and he's going to bring the new creation. But in the meantime, it's necessary that there are temptations in the world. But woe to the one by whom the temptations come. Yes, our world is broken. Yes, temptation is everywhere. But that doesn't let anyone off the hook if they cause someone else to stumble. To even just take a couple of examples here in chapter 18. Look again at verse 10. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. We'll look at that in more detail next week. But just hear this. If you stay bitter at a Christian brother or sister, you despise them, right? If you deprive them of your love and your service, if you gossip about them behind their back, poison other people's opinion of them, if you spit unkind words at them or about them, woe to you. 
says Jesus. On your own head, be it. Or come down to verse 21. Peter came up and he said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many seven times? And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. In other words, keep forgiving him, keep forgiving, keep forgiving, keep forgiving. As the Lord forgave you, forgive others. So if you deprive your Christian brother or sister of forgiveness, hold back your warmth from them. Cause them to remain in a position of angst and worry over the broken relationship. Make them feel unwelcome here. Then woe to you, says Jesus. On your own head, be it. And yes, forgiveness is hard. And forgiveness doesn't equal trust necessarily, does it? If someone hurts you, you might say, I need to put some boundaries. That's okay. But we have to forgive. Treat someone with positive regard. Otherwise, we might find ourselves locked out of the kingdom of heaven. Again, in a few weeks, we're going to look at the passage that deals with that. But here's the point, right? No person is an island. If you're a Christian, you're connected, right? Hands and legs and eyes and noses and pinky toes. That's the family of God. And so God is saying, I'm not going to put up with it if one part of the body is, is hurting another part of the body. I'm not going to put up with that. And one ancient Christian puts it this way, Anthony the Great, our life and death is with our neighbor. If we gain our brother, we've gained God. But if we scandalize our brother, we've sinned against Christ. You're hearing the seriousness of that. I wonder if someone comes to your mind and you're just thinking, well, I need to change the way I treat them. I need to respond to them in a different way. There's a seriousness to this. And that's why in verse 8 to 9, just quickly, Jesus makes a couple of big claims, right? If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, I won't make the sound effect, gouge it out. And we've, we've heard these words before back in Matthew chapter 5, right? The context back there was adultery, so personal sin. The context here is a little bit different. This is talking more about the body life. It's talking more about our life with one another. And so I think that's what Jesus is meaning with these words here. He's actually saying to us, if anything's causing you to put a stumbling block in front of someone else, cut that thing out of your life. If anything's causing you to lead someone else into sin, and especially the young or the vulnerable among us, cut it out. But I'm not responsible for what other people do. Yeah, sure. But you are responsible if your sin leads them into sin. Cut it out. But I shouldn't have to limit my freedoms just because someone else is struggling. Yeah, okay, but if you don't, you're not just putting them in danger, you're putting yourself in danger. Make a choice. Yeah, but I'm, surely I don't need to make a, a big deal over this. <laughs> Feet and eyes, <laughs> which obviously we, we don't literally cut those things off, right? There was an ancient Christian named Origen who did that with part of his body. He castrated himself and he ended up campaigning against that interpretation of the text later on because he realized it didn't make a difference <laughs> right so that that's not what we're being called to do but we're being called to take very drastic action here see um if you were told by a doctor like let's say you've got you know really severe diabetes or something and they're like your foot is is going to have to go otherwise you were going to be dead in months you'd say sure there's no other way yeah foot or your life you go Take the foot. That's fine. Take the foot. I'll learn to live without it. There's the picture that Jesus is giving us here. 
right? If the foot's causing you to sin, get rid of it. If the eye's causing you to sin, if it's causing you to lead someone else into sin, take drastic action. So in other words, the question is this. Are you willing to make personal sacrifices so that you don't lead your brothers or sisters to stumble in their faith? A friend of mine calls this the ministry of losing. I like that title. I'm a goalkeeper in our church soccer team. I'm very familiar with the ministry of losing. Actually, we've been doing pretty well lately. The ministry of losing, right? Willingness to put my preferences down for the sake of others. Swallowing my pride for the sake of forgiveness. Learning to notice how my actions affect others. It's the ministry of losing. Choosing to to take the last place instead of the first. And you can see how that connects with a humble childlike faith, right? After all, this is the position that Jesus himself took. Philippians 2 verse 5, I'll just read this out to you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a a servant, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And at this juncture, we're called to look beyond just the child in the midst of the crowd to the cross. And there we see the greatest example of humility, the greatest ministry of loss, where Jesus set aside his divine privilege his place on the throne to embrace the weakness of humanity and did so all the way to death as an obedient son following his father's will, taking the judgment we deserve upon himself. Now, does that truth capture you? Does that picture of true humility shape you? Does it shape the way that you approach God? Does it shape the way you approach your Christian brothers and sisters. This is the way to true greatness. Humility, accountability, taking myself down a peg, lifting others up. And we're going to pray to finish off. I'm going to pray using a uh, a prayer from a book called The Valley of Vision. Have you heard of it before? We've recommended it a few times. It's the opening prayer in this book. And I think it just really puts words to the kind of posture the Lord wants us to have. So, If you are the praying kind and if you are the kind that that is adopting this posture, I just invite you to make these words your own as we pray. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, 
that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Amen.